here we have Jennifer Grayson. Thank you. Matthews. Okay. So I've got my expert recording engineer husband. Okay. <laughs> okay, so hi everyone. I'm Jennifer Grayson. Uh, thank you so much for coming here today. I'm just looking and seeing so many faces. Everyone who has helped me on this now three-year journey so far. So I wish I could thank every one of you in person right now, but that's going to be a whole other speech. So look at the acknowledgments section of my book. Um, and just thank you to everyone. Also, of course, thank you to Skylight Books for hosting this wonderful event. If you are going to buy my book, and I suggest that you do, <laughs> please support this wonderful LA institution and buy it here. So thank you. Um, so I was actually planning on starting my talk today with a little cute story, but I, I feel like I do have to acknowledge the recent incredibly sad events um, in Dallas, in Baton Rouge, in Minnesota, in Orlando. Um, and, you know, this may seem like a weird transition to a book about breastfeeding, but we now, with no doubt, live in a very chaotic, uncertain world. Um, a world of 7 billion people and counting, a world where we're often struggling against the, our own technologies that we've created um, in such a relatively small span of time. And I think there's been a real push to understand, so, you know, what does it mean to be human in the 21st century? And there's been a real movement to try to reconnect with the human beings that we were for hundreds of thousands of years before we were sort of plunged into this very frenetic, rapidly changing world. Um, and so whether that's the increasingly urban world that we live in and trying to reconnect with nature or re-examining the industrialization of the food we eat or recognizing that our health is now suffering because we've ignored basic biological processes like sleeping um, or our human relationships that have been forever altered by texting and smartphones and undoubtedly, of course, re-examining the way we nurture and raise our children. And so this whole idea, the way, that we, way we live now is so different than the way human beings have lived for hundreds of thousands of years is something that I really... Thank you, my sweet angel. <laughs> I should have started out this talk by, of course, thanking my two beautiful children, Izzy and Mika, <laughs> for being the inspiration for this story. Obviously, I'm a little nervous, so I forgot my own children and my, my own husband. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Thank you. Um, so anyway, the, you know, this fascination I've always had with who we were as human beings for hundreds of thousands of years and what did we live like before we lived in this crazy modern world. This is something I've always been fascinated by. And one of my earliest memories is of being a little kid underneath the covers at night with my flashlight and reading about all these stories of... Um, you know, man versus nature that I loved as a kid, like Island of the Blue Dolphins and Julie of the Wolves and Little House on the Prairie. And I see smiles in the audience, so I know other people love these books too. And I was always fascinated by other cultures and um, Greek and Egyptian mythology. And then all of these things in high school too. And in college, I thought maybe I'll be an anthropologist. And I loved learning about other languages. And then fast forward to later on when I became uh, a journalist, I started writing about environmental issues. And I had all of these things I was so fascinated by, and I never thought how they would all connect in this really interesting way. And um, my mom always said that I wouldn't really figure out how to piece everything together until after I had kids. 
but she was right because this all came together um, after the birth of my first child, Izzy, who I guess is ran around the corner. <laughs> um, and so what happened was this all came together because I found myself nursing or Izzy way longer than I had ever planned to do. Um, you know, my original plan was to breastfeed for six months, like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the World Health Organization said, exclusively breastfeed for that long. And then, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom, and it just was easy for me, and time kept going by, and I was still breastfeeding her, and it was a year, and I was still nursing her, and then a year and a half, and then I was suddenly pregnant with my second one, Mika, and I was still nursing Izzy, and all this time, this was around the time when all of the issues around breastfeeding and the controversy started playing out in the media, and then Izzy was about 20 months old, I don't know if you all remember this cover that came out. And my family started joking that this was going to be me next on the cover (laughs) Uh, with Izzy climbing up for a drink. Hi, sweetie pie. (laughs) You want to go with daddy? Okay. (laughs) Attachment parenting, everyone. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. So... um, Anyway, you know, this was, this was around the time all this was going on around in the media. And whether or not you should breastfeed, how long you should do it for, where, whether it was appropriate to nurse in public, how long was it socially acceptable to nurse. And this was going on in the media. These were, these were personal issues that I struggled with, too, because I didn't really know a lot of other people who had breastfed their kids as long as I did. And, um, you know, this, this really all came to a head... After the birth of my second daughter, Mika, we were in the hospital. The lactation consultant came into the room to check and see how we were doing. And I started asking her all these questions. Well, like, now I'm going to be tandem nursing two kids. This is crazy. How long until I wean Izzy? And she just looked at me and she said, that's right. She said, you know, it wasn't that long ago in our history that it wasn't just common to nurse a kid until two but until four. And in fact, it was only a few generations ago that nearly every person on earth could remember being breastfed. And I thought, wow, you know, this is just, here is another fascinating part of our human history that I had never even before considered. Um, And so, of course, I, I started doing research on my own and found that Yes, this was true, that the biological weaning age for most kids throughout human history was two and a half to seven years old. And even as late as 1880 in the United States, it was common to nurse a kid until the age of four. And so what did that mean, not only to our physical development, to our health, to our psychological development, that we had strayed from what was once the biological norm. And and these are questions I didn't know if anyone could answer. And so I found myself really on this journey to uncover our breastfeeding history, Um, interviewing anthropologists and biologists, historians, top lactation consultants, um, and lactation scientists is what I meant to say, but also many (laughs) top lactation consultants, and of course mothers. Um, I'm not going to give away the whole story, but You know, I uncovered some really fascinating things right off the bat. Like, for instance, the lactating mammary gland consumes 30% of the body's total resting energy. That's more than the brain. That's more than the heart. And so from an evolutionary standpoint, this was something that was pivotal to our survival. And ultimately, you know, this isn't 
a women's a woman's issue. This isn't a book just about breastfeeding. Um, it's about reconnecting to our humanity in a rapidly changing world, um, a rapidly chaotic world, and of course, it's about reconnecting to our children, and and really ultimately the future of what it means to be human. And so, this was a real journey for me. I hope you take it with me by reading the book, and um, that means buy the book, please. <laughs> And just thank you all so much for your support. And of course, um, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer. Mommy! <laughs> yes? Of course. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, the pivotal point, and by the way, I just want to, this question was by historian and author Nancy Cohen, who wrote an incredible book called Breakthrough, and she was kind enough to write the endorsement also, write an endorsement for my book. So, of course, a very intelligent question from Nancy. Um, the, you know, the, the, what I was just talking about in the hospital right after Mika was born, that was really the turning point for me. So even before that, I had, I, I'm a writer. I thought, oh, maybe one day I'll have an idea for a book. And, you know, there were other things that happened along the way that I was sort of like, oh, I wonder what people did a couple hundred years ago breastfeeding. And I started having all these little nuggets, but it was really that moment in the hospital. I, I mean, within... I don't know, I'd say like once I recovered from the birth, <laughs> I really just found myself like this is a real book here. And because I think in the media it had played out, as I was starting to try to look for research about what breastfeeding was like in other cultures and what breastfeeding had been like throughout our history, there wasn't a lot of information about that. And what the information was about was about what you just touched on, which is like this mommy wars of people who are breastfeeding, people who are formula feeding. No one was examining why, why is it that so many women can't breastfeed. I mean, you've got 80% of women now starting off breastfeeding, and half of them give it up or start supplementing with formula within a few weeks. And so why isn't anyone looking at what's really going on from a societal standpoint? So that was kind of a long answer. But yeah, it, so that's when I really started thinking about th this is a really big story that I want to tell. Yes? Um, there were a couple of things, but the big thing was that human milk is a mystery. We do not know what's in human milk. We mapped the human genome over a decade ago. I mean, not we, scientists have. Uh, <laughs> but we do not yet have a full catalog of what is in human milk. And so it's amazing that we know so little about the first food that we as mammals are adapted to consume. That just blew my mind. No one ever talks about that. Everyone talks about this is a benefit of breastfeeding, this is not a benefit of breastfeeding, it makes you smarter, it doesn't make you... But how can we have a full conversation about the issues when we don't even know what we're talking about? Oh, they are, they are researching it. it is, oh yeah, and um, what's interesting is they are partnering with the top lactation scientists in the world, of course, to find out all of these, what is in human milk, because 
Of course, as we know more about human milk, we do want to make formulas better for women who can't breastfeed, and and they're very much interested in this knowledge for sure. Thank you. Yes. Hi. You know, okay. Want to come answer some questions? Okay. Is there any kind of nutritional aspect to the book and going into you know specific foods that promote lactation or interfere with milk production? Yeah, that's an interesting question too because you know as a lot of new mothers think, well, what can I eat to make sure that I have the best chance of breastfeeding? And what's amazing is we don't really, scientists know it, don't know anything about that either. We have almost no scientific... <laughs> I'm going to move you to this side. You want to go with Grandma? Here, come, come eat. Come here. We have, you know, we have almost no scientific information about how what a mother eats affects the mammary gland. So you would, you know, it would make sense that the food that you eat, if it's really good food, that that would pass on good nutrition to your child, but... We don't have any scientific information about that either. And um, I, I do talk a lot in the, sto- in the book about the whole supply and demand issue. You know, like, it's really epidemic now that women feel like they cannot produce enough breast milk to feed their children. And one of the misconceptions is that you can eat things that will somehow increase milk production. And there are all these things like, you know, breast milk cookies and oatmeal and other, and other substances that you can take. But the only thing that really does influence milk production is a baby's demand. And so that's another interesting thing that we're, we've sort of lost awareness of, that we don't know that those two things are connected. So I do interview a lot of scientists who talk about that whole relationship too, which is fascinating. Yes? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, what I wanted to ask about, I was curious, I don't know if this is touched on at all, anything about the research, but there is a seeming, um, there's a controversy or a contradiction, I think, in the public health community or in the medical community, even AAP. Yeah. And of course, they recommend, you know, there's no, there's no argument that, that breast milk is the optimal nutrition for an infant, at least up to six months or after a year of supplementing. But then there's the same uh, AAP Kids Advisory Council, which says never ever sleep with your baby in bed, which kind of can make it challenging right. for breastfeeding moms. So, have you, did you come across that, that controversy and find out anything? Oh, absolutely. And what's so interesting is that one of my chapters is based around the advent of pediatricians and the ties to infant formula. So, um, the whole role of the pediatrician didn't actually exist until infant formula came about and there was this whole group of doctors tasked with trying to figure out why all these babies were dying as women were trying to come up with these substitutes for feeding their children. And so it is the whole sleep sharing thing is part of that because you have this group of experts who basically came about, um, you know, not to promote breastfeeding but to help fix the problem of women formula feeding and all the health issues that were resulting. And I'm talking about like the turn of the last century. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a huge issue and it's something that I think a lot of, um, you know, the AAP is re-examining right now, the whole sleep sharing issue. There's an amazing researcher named James McKenna, who I don't know if you're familiar with his work, who's out of Notre Dame, who's been really doing a lot of interesting work about how these things, of course, are very connected because throughout most of human history, you know, babies were not in separate rooms in cribs 
they were next to their mothers where they could be next to their source of nutrition all night. So yeah, that is something I do explore in the book and I find it just fascinating. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Seeing all these wonderful faces, people who came out, I haven't seen them, hi. Um, I'm curious about uh, in your research if you looked at all of public policy as it relates to like the working mother um, and being able to breastfeed and continue breastfeeding for the minimum or maximum amount of time and how that may be compared on the international scale. Yeah. Of course, that's a huge issue. I mean, the other part of this book, and I wish I could talk about everything right now, is the just overwhelming lack of support for American mothers. And the fact that we've promoted breast is best in a society where we've made it impossible for most women to be able to, to nurse their children. It's, it's literally impossible. We are the only industrialized country in the world without paid maternity leave, and one of a tiny handful of whole countries in the whole world. And so... Yeah, I mean, we need to address these issues, absolutely, because, you know, when, when, you, when you have to go back to work, like, a couple weeks after giving birth, and then you're sent back to work, not with your child next door in an on-site daycare facility, even, but at home, and you're sent to work with a breast pump as a substitute for your child, it's, it, we've created a really impossible situation. And so I think we do need to stop blaming each other and blaming mothers and start looking at the real underlying public policy issues. Do you have any questions, my dear? No. Yes? Uh, my question is about tone. You have a lot of yourself in this book, which I think is... Mommy. You also have a lot of really well-researched... Mommy. Hello. Oh, thank you. Um, I guess we, so. Your question is, how did I balance the two, like yeah. journalists? You know, I I don't know that I would say it was a challenge. I, I this was really my own personal journey and. I think I always think that the most compelling way to talk about anything is to tell a personal story, and so this really is the story of me, you know, taking my kids with me as I go talk to lactation scientists. You know, I I, I found it almost impossible to separate the two. Although I would say that in terms of looking for the root of the problems of society and and examining, you know, the real science, like it was very important to me to despite the fact that I have nursed my children for a long time, I wanted it to be as objective as possible and to not make this a biased story because I think, you know, look, like a lot of the other breastfeeding books that I've read out there, it, they do tend to very much be like anti-formula and just... I, I wanted to really present as balanced, as big a picture, as many different levels as possible. So we'll see how it turns out. Yes. Hi. I read the book, um, but I don't remember if this is touched on. But something you just said now made me think you might know the answer to this question. Do we know how long other primates nurse their young? Oh yeah, for sure. And and most of the research that is being done on human lactation is done with primates. It's not done with humans because most moms don't want to subject their kids to being guinea pigs. Um, so. Yeah, the, all the larger bodied primates, when you're talking about apes, um, uh, baboons, they, they nurse their young for, we're talking spans of years. And um, 
we are apes, and we share, I think, 99.4% of our DNA with, um, with chimpanzees is our closest relative. So, yeah, I mean, we are geared to have very long nursing patterns, just like the larger-bodied primates, because we are larger-bodied primates. Any other questions? Hi, of course. Oh, great question. I buried my lead. Um, I nursed Izzy until just before she turned four. And I am still nursing Mika, who is three and a half. Um, what? No, that's apple juice. That's apple juice. Uh, it's okay. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because with Izzy, I definitely, my older one, I definitely felt the pressure all along. We were like, you know, how long is this going to go on for? Should I stop already? And thanks, sweetie. And with Mika, you know, I do, I, do, I know this sounds crazy, but even though I nursed Izzy till four, I feel like she probably, I, I pushed her too soon. I mean, we probably could have gone for another six months or until five. I know that doesn't sound normal for our society, but I see now with my second that they all grow up, you know, they, they all eventually like run off to school and they're like, bye mom, don't care about you anymore. So I, I feel much, I don't feel as pushed to push Mika to stop nursing. So we'll see what happens. Oh, it absolutely is possible. I, <laughs> it's you know it's it's one of the things I look at the, at the book in the book um, because that whole relationship with how how we nurse our children at night is much different than the way it was for most of human history. For most of human history, it was a form of birth control, and it's one of the interesting things we've overlooked in the population explosion. One of the reasons why, and I don't go into this in a ton of detail in the book, but one of the reasons, undoubtedly, why. Humanity exploded around the turn of the last centuries because that was the infant, the advent of infant formula. And all of a sudden, women weren't nursing their children for four years. And all of a sudden, they weren't nursing at night anymore. And it was easier for everyone to get pregnant more quickly. Prior to that, you know, kings and queens would have wet nurses feed their children so that they could conceive more heirs. And they were the ones who would use those methods to conceive more children. Um, but then all of a sudden, everyone could. So yeah, it, it does work as a form of birth control, but really only if you do it in the way that hunter-gatherer societies um, nurse their children, which is breastfeeding for very long periods throughout the night, and also in areas where food is not as secure. So a woman's body can't support two pregnancies necessarily because they don't have access to the same kind of nutrition we do. Good question. Anyone else? We've got lots of champagne and food up here, so if no one has any questions, please join us, and I'd love to sign some books. Thank you so much all for being here. It really means a lot to me. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.